Welcome to A Book Like No Other, a podcast about reading the Torah on its own terms. A Book Like No Other is a product developed by Aleph Beta and is made possible through the generous support of Shari and Nathan Lindenbaum. Hi, I'm Imu Shalev. In each season of this podcast, I'm going to be joining my teacher and friend, Rabbi David Foreman, and we're going to be exploring a text of his choice. So what's on the docket for this season? Well, when it comes to studying Torah, there are usual suspects like uh, Abraham's sacrifice of Isaac, the Exodus, these like foundational stories that we turn to again and again. But Rabbi Foreman had something very different in mind for this season, and it is the tale of the Mikalel. The Blasphemer, a lesser-known episode buried deep, deep, deep in, of all places, the middle of Leviticus. Leviticus is not much of a storybook. We've got all sorts of laws, not much in the way of stories, Mm -hmm. and all of a sudden, seemingly out of nowhere, we get hit with this story, and it's a really painful story. It's a story of a blasphemer, somebody who curses God. Um, The death penalty is ultimately accorded to him. That's funny. I I imagine most people listening will not even know what you're talking Mm -hmm. about. You know, most people don't remember the story of the Mikalel, just the random verses about some random guy who curses God. Random verses about some random guy or a really painful story? Rabbi Foreman and I were offering two really different framings for the exact same text. But when it comes to the Mikalel, there's actually some truth to both of them. So let me actually just give you the basics of the story. There's a nameless man who enters the Israelite camp. Without saying a word, he just gets into a fight. And then suddenly, he curses God. What the people do when they hear that is they bring him to Moses, and Moses brings his case before God for sentencing. And the verdict of that case? Stone him. And the people do that. That's the end of the story. You can see why Rabbi Foreman calls this painful. There's a fight, a stoning, cursing God. Add to that this strange placement in Leviticus and how without context or warning, the Torah inserts these heavy topics between the laws about the tabernacle and the Jubilee year. It's just, it's so strange. It's very jarring, but it's also random. Maybe a better way to put it is that it's self-enclosed, cut and dry. Someone does a terrible crime and he's punished for it. The Torah moves on from that story so quickly. There's no prologue, there's no epilogue. So if the Torah moves on from this story so quickly, maybe we're supposed to as well. And that's kind of the way many of us treat this story. We know it's there, we gloss over it, we move on. But here's the thing about the Torah and the thing that this podcast is kind of all about. It's also the thing you'll see Rabbi Foreman will prove to me again and again over this season a story like the Mikalel can seem cut and dry. Like the text doesn't want us to pay too much attention or ask too many questions. But if you look a little closer and trust that every word in this book is sacred, it's put there on purpose, then you're likely to find those words are full of oddities and small invitations into deeper and deeper layers of meaning. So what questions is the Torah begging us to ask about the Mikalel? Well, we already had one. What was it doing in Leviticus? To find the rest of the questions, we turned, of course, to the text itself. So join me. Let's jump in and read together. (music) 
This is Leviticus chapter 24, verse 10. And there went out the child of an Israelite woman, the child of an Egyptian man, into the midst of the children of Israel, and they fought in the camp, this child of the Israelite woman, with an Israelite man. So, Imu, let's just stop here ceremoniously. Tell me what strikes you as either odd or noteworthy. Oh, I've got I've got a gazillion questions already. <laughs> okay, so go ahead. I'm listening. Well, I, I, sure. I, I guess I'll start in, in order. You know, the verse says, "And he went out, this uh, son of the Israelite woman and Egyptian man. What did he go out from?" In other words, if it had in fact said, "And this person left the camp." and then did this, I would at least understand what that meant. Mm -hmm. But instead, we actually get the reverse of that. Vayetze, he goes out, betoch b'nei Israel, into the midst of Israel. It seems like it's backwards. I have no context for where he's going out from. Okay, good. What else? I mean, there's vayinatsu b'machana, all of a sudden he just starts fighting. That to me would, would would beg, I think, like probably the biggest question in this verse, which is, why are they fighting? What are they fighting about? Why are they fighting? It's strange that we have a fight, and the fight seems to be important, and we know nothing about why they're fighting. It's funny. I was just reading an interesting Twitter thread about storytelling. Mm-hmm. They said, you can't say, uh, you know, first this happened, and then that happened. It has to be first this happened, therefore that happened, right? So here, it, this feels like bad storytelling. It's a, this guy went out, and then there was a fight, uh, as opposed to, and this guy went out, and therefore there was a fight. Yep. So the text doesn't give us that explicit therefore. In essence, a reason why this man's going out led to a fight. But what we did notice is that it gives us some seemingly extra details about the fighters and their identities that might imply their motivation. The idea here seems to be that there's a child of mixed lineage. Uh, On the one hand, his mother is an Israelite. His father is a Mitzri, an Egyptian. And it sounds like he's fighting somebody who's not of mixed lineage, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, so totally. he's, he's just fighting a regular Israelite person. So we have a mixed lineage person fighting a regular Israelite person. Could the text be hinting that the Makalel's mixed lineage was causing tension with his full Israelite brethren, and therefore he got into a fight? That still leaves a lot unsaid. Even if there was tension, what caused it to escalate into violence at this moment between these people? We were just one verse in, but the story was already full of gaps. And let me tell you the truth, the next verse wasn't any better. And if you go into the next verse, we have another implied therefore that also seems questionable. Look at the next thing that happens. Vayikov ben ha'isha Yisraeli says Hashem. The child of the Israelite woman, he cursed the name of God. As one does. As one yeah. does. Well, <laughs> let me ask you this. Who would you would imagine would a curse at the end of a fight, the winner or the loser? The loser. So it sounds like we're hearing from the fact that he's cursing that he lost the fight. It sounds like he is the loser in some sense in this fight. Right. Right. But you would imagine every good fight ends with the loser cursing the winner, right? But here, somehow... God gets pulled into the mix. What's God, God doing? God won. Um, and that's the big question mark. What does God have to do with this? The man suddenly cursing God is definitely one of the paramount, inexplicable moments of the story. But when it comes to things coming out of nowhere, 
the end of the verse, though far less dramatic, certainly deserves an honorable mention as well. And they brought him to Moses. And the name of his mother was Shlomit, the daughter of Divri, from the tribe of Dan. We hear about not the identity of the person, the identity of the person who's doing the cursing remains anonymous the whole time, but we hear of all things his mother's name and tribe, as if the tribe of Dan is important here. These details about the man's mother, like the Macaulay's mixed lineage, felt a little like a tease. Like, these facts were supposed to help us make sense of this story, but it wasn't clear to me how. This man still felt like a mystery. We didn't know where he came from, why he got into a fight, or why he cursed God. But, all right, let's keep going. So, the last thing that happened was they brought the man to Moses, and here's the next verse. And he was placed in custody until the decision of God should be made clear to them. Now, compared to the earlier verses, this one felt a lot more straightforward. But it did strike me as odd that it was here at all. The story leaves out so many seemingly important details, and then all of a sudden we're getting a play-by-play of every step of the legal process? It's a good question, right? Why do we need to know about this? Like, imagine we're writing a different version of the story. There's a guy who curses God, and then they go and they stone him, right? Like, would you have stopped and said, hey, what's going on here? They should have asked God what to do? I mean, I would have. Because unless you have a law in the Torah that defines this punishment, that would just be vigilante justice. Okay, maybe it wasn't a good question, but I wasn't ready to give up on it just yet. I hear you. So you think that the them not knowing what to do and asking God was to give God an excuse to introduce a new law. Well, that's an interesting point. In other words, the question is, why does this law come specifically as a response to a situation rather than as, you know, here's what you do, like any other law? Our, our Torah would be a lot longer if all the laws in Mishpatim were introduced that way, right? So, revised question. If the Torah wanted to teach us the law for cursing God, it could have just done that and never mentioned the Makalel. Why couch this law in a story? And that got Rabbi Foreman thinking. We do have laws elsewhere in the Torah about cursing. It's just not cursing God. If you curse your mother and your father using the name of God, that's also a capital crime. Yeah. So it would seem that cursing God was something really bad, right? but it just hadn't been talked about. To me, the fact that it hadn't been talked about might suggest that had it not been for the fact that there was a case of this, you almost would have considered this unmentionable. Like, it it would have been mm. such a black swan that you wouldn't even bother talking about it because who's going to do this? And think about mm. it, there actually is something weird about it. <laughs> Here's what's weird. What does it mean to curse God? What does it mean to curse your parents? It doesn't mean to say, damn you to your parents. That's not punishable by death. In the Torah's lexicon, cursing means using the name of God, right? The particular name of God, the sacred name of God, and using that to curse your parents. So think about what it means to curse God then. It means using the name of God to curse God. How weird is that? Mm -hmm. 
It's like, here you are, and you're imputing great value to the name of God because you're using that as the vehicle of a curse, and yet the object of the curse is the same God whose name you're invoking. It just doesn't make any sense. Are you suggesting that, like, to use the name of God to curse your parents, you know, that's that's terrible. But to use the name of God to curse God is strangely an act of faith and also an act of terribleness at the same time. Yeah, right. In other words, if I'm cursing someone, so to curse is to revile. It's to render completely non-holy. And yet, to curse in the name of someone is I take the most sanctified being I can and saying, let that being, you know, render curse upon you. By implication, I'm holding that being to be the greatest paragon of sanctity, and that's why I'm cursing in the name of that being. So to curse God in the name of God is sort of the ultimate oxymoron, which might be why everyone's so flummoxed about what to do about it. We were supposed to just be asking questions on the text, not starting to answer them, but Rabbi Foreman's suggestion was intriguing. Maybe blasphemy was so inherently twisted that this law couldn't just be legislated or derived from precedent. It had to be experienced to be believed. Maybe that's why the Israelites only learned about it from an actual case. And I'll add, maybe why we continue to learn about it from a narrative. Maybe. The theory as a whole is speculative, but I think its real value wasn't in how it answered my question, but in the new questions that it raised. How are we supposed to understand the perplexing nature of blasphemy? What compels a person who holds God's name to be sacred to weaponize that name against God himself? Our read through the story was nearing its end. Kind of. The dramatic events were wrapping up. After the Makalel was put in jail, Moshe consults with God and God tells him what to do. Hotsei et hamakalel el michutz take the blasphemer outside the camp, v'samchu chol hashomim et yedehem al rosho, and let all who were within hearing distance lay their hands upon his head. V'ragmu oto kol ha'eda and let the community stone him. But then, God says more than that. Like, much more than that. God's speech, you would think, would end right there. I mean, that would be a pretty, you know, uh, clear way to end. <laughs> Not pretty final. <laughs> pretty final. Um, they didn't know what to do, and God says, here's what you do, right? But God takes the opportunity to tell us some other things, too. The Albanese Israel to Daber more. the verse continues, and says, And to the people of Israel, you say the following, Ish, ish, ki Anyone who curses God bears his sin. I'm just going to jump in here and summarize the rest of God's speech, since it's actually a bit long. So, after God tells Moshe that the punishment for the Makalel is stoning, God clarifies that anyone who curses God, the punishment is stoning. And then we get the punishments for a couple of other crimes. Number one, murder of a human being. And we're told that the punishment for that is death. Two, the killing of an animal, which God says demands restitution. And the language that's used here is the famous phrase, nefesh tachat nafesh, a soul for a soul. The sages, though, understand that to mean 
monetary compensation. And finally, the third crime that's mentioned is the maiming of a human being, which also demands compensation. And here we also have some famous language. Ein tachat ein, shein tachat shein. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, which again, the sages interpret this as monetary. Finally, the speech ends with a little summary, which we can fade back into Rabbi Foreman's reading to catch. By way of summary, God says, so the bottom line is, if you strike an animal, you have to pay. If you strike a mortal blow to a human being and kill them, then the punishment is death. Mishpat echad yelachem. And the overriding thing that governs all these laws is that there's one law for everybody. Kager ka'ezrahi, a sojourner, a stranger, is dealt with the same way as a natural-born citizen. Ani Hashem alakecham, I am the Lord your God. And then they go out, they carry out this punishment, the, the blasphemer is killed, and that is the end of the story. It was the end of the story, but Rabbi Foreman had one last question to add to our list. There was something strange about God's speech. What's strange about the speech, I think, is that so much of it doesn't seem to be relevant, right? Like, if I were Moshe, listening to God's speech, and I'm thinking, you know, God, I, I just needed to know the first part of this. Tell me what to do with the makala. Why are you telling me this whole long rigmarole about all these other things that are not relevant to the right. story? They didn't ask you about the person who hit somebody. They didn't ask you about the person who killed somebody. Certainly didn't ask you about what happens if you hurt an animal, animals, right? <laughs> <laughs> not only that, like I, I, you know, while you were reading, I was like, okay, maybe the text moved on from the Mikhailov story to you know more laws. It is Leviticus after all. But then the very last verse of this story takes us back to the Mikhailov story to tell you, no, 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 we haven't moved on. You know, free association to do some other laws here. This is all part of the. The cursing story, it tells you, and after God gave Moses all these laws, they went and carried out the law as it pertains to the the guy who was cursing. So the the text very carefully is sandwiching this random list of laws in the Mikhailov story. Yeah. Remember when I called this story cut and dry? Clearly it was anything but. Okay, so once more for good measure, here's what we noticed. We had the question about the story's strange placement in Leviticus. We had a question about the man just showing up in the camp, suddenly fighting, suddenly cursing God, no context, no motivation. We had the question about the weird inclusion of his mixed lineage and the details about his mother. And we also had my questions about why we need to be told he's put in jail and why the law against blasphemy is taught to us through a story. Plus, we are also struggling to wrap our heads around the oxymoronic nature of cursing God with God's name. And finally, as a cherry on top, we have God's strange choice to suddenly teach the laws of murder and maiming in the middle of all of this. So now that we had all these questions in front of us, the real question became where to start getting some answers. It turns out we weren't the first to notice these questions. The Medrash noticed oh, these right? The Medrash noticed <laughs> I thought we'd questions. pioneer something. <laughs> that's right. That's right. No, anything really good is usually really old, and here that's certainly true in spades. So Rashi, the great-grandfather of medieval commentators, he quotes a Medrash that seems to implicitly deal with almost every one of the questions that we talked about. For those of you not familiar, Medrash is an early form of rabbinic commentary on the Torah. It's known for being colorful and sometimes confusing. 
often adding details or whole episodes to a Bible story that seems completely ungrounded. But when you take a closer look, more often than not, the Medrash is actually playing off the same kind of textual anomalies that Rabbi Foreman is so fond of. And that was certainly true for the Medrash Rabbi Foreman wanted to show me that was quoted in this Rashi. Not only would it knit together many of the strange details that we noticed in the Mikhail story, but by doing so, it was about to give us that larger context for the story that we so deeply desired. Only, of course, this new context, this new lens on the story, it would open up its own questions. But we'll get there. Let's just start by reading Rashi. Rashi's commenting on those first words of the story, Vayetze ben Isha Yisraelit, and there went out this child of an Israelite woman. And Rashi asked the obvious question, the same question that you and I asked, Mehechan where did he go out from, this guy? You can't just say he went out without saying where he went out from. So here's what the Medrash says. Based in Shalmosha Yatsa Mechuyev, you know where he left? He left the courthouse of Moses, and he left the courthouse of Moses having lost his case. Turns out, the Medrash says, that the backstory to the Mekalal, to the blasphemer, is that he came to Moses to help settle a dispute. What was the dispute? Well, remember how we heard about how his mother came from the tribe of Dan, and we wondered why that was important? So the Medrash says, you know why we had to hear about that? Turns out this guy... This guy wanted to put his tent down in the middle of Machana Dan, the tribe of Dan. But Amrulo, the people from Dan, came to him and said, Mativ Chalakan, what are you doing here? Amrulahem, so he said, well, what do you mean? Mibnos Danani, my mom's from Dan. Amrulo, everybody from Dan, came to him and said, no, 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 you don't understand, right? It doesn't work that way. You have to show me your license where it says that your dad came from Dan because even though whether you're a Jew at all comes from matrilineal descent, your tribal affiliation actually follows your father. So what tribe is your father from? And now we begin to understand another of the questions, why we needed to know that the Mekalal was fighting this person who's a full Israelite, and he's a mixed mm. marriage, and it turns out that that's actually the reason for the fight. It was the fact mm. that he was of mixed marriage. And uh, there was a guy whose father and mother came from Don, who challenged him together with all the other Donites and said, what are you doing here? Your father's an Egyptian, so, you know, go back to Egypt. You don't have a place with us. So the guy went to Moshe. Nichnas lebeistinoshal Moshe. He went to Moses to adjudicate the law. And it turns out he lost, because it's true. Tribal affiliation goes after the father. Ahmad Vigidev. As he left the courthouse, he went and he cursed God. There was something really elegant about this medrash. Look, while it doesn't address all of our questions, it does address a lot of them. Just like that, it turns the verses into a genuine story. For instance, we know where this man was coming from. He was coming from Moshe's court. And now we know why he got into a fight. Well, it makes sense. He was ostracized. But you may still be wondering... Why did that fight end in cursing God? Well, that's actually the next piece Rabbi Foreman and I talked out. Why would he curse God at the end of all of this? What does God have to do with this? If you could interview the blasphemer, what might he say? God forgot about people who have uh, mixed heritage. Like, they don't have a place in the camp. So 
basically, he's upset that God's rule doesn't take him into account. Exactly. God's rule doesn't take him into account. And who is God? God is the rule maker, but God's not just the rule maker. God's also the creator. So if you created me, what were you doing creating me without really giving me a place in your world? You know, what am I doing here? I just fall between the cracks. The law that excluded the Mikalel was legislated by God. And so just for that reason alone, it makes sense that the Mikalel's anger would be turned towards God. But Rabbi Foreman was pointing out an even deeper reason for the cursing. God wasn't just the legislator of this law. He was also the creator of the person who this law leaves out. It's as if God condemns the Mikalel to be ostracized from the very moment of his birth. Realizing that, we began to see the Mikalel in a whole new light. This guy, when you read it on his face, he's a jerk. Uh, you know, he's fighting with everybody. He's cursing God. But, you know, it, it, poor guy. He just wanted a place in the camp. You know, it reminds me of uh, Mary Shelley's novel, Frankenstein. You know, Frankenstein, the novel is very different from Frankenstein, the movie. But in Frankenstein, the novel, the monster is a sympathetic character, actually, once you understand his backstory. Here's this artificial human being that gets constructed by this Dr. Frankenstein. And Dr. Frankenstein is a little bit cavalier about it and didn't pay attention to the responsibilities that attend to creation, one of which is social acceptance and love. Consider what the Torah tells us about God who created one human being. What's the the doubt and the concern that plagued God after creating that one human being? That's right. It's not good for man to be alone. That is the cornerstone realization of a creator. And so God was forced for the benefit of man to create a mate for him. But Dr. Frankenstein didn't get the memo. Or Mortar by Foreman's point, he didn't care. He only created one of his artificial human beings, and the novel takes a tragic turn from there. And so this artificial human being goes out in search of connection. And there's this scene in the book that I still remember where he's, you know, a sight that strikes fear and terror and anybody who sees him. And so he hides and there's this people who are living this poverty-stricken existence in the forest. And he watches them every day and he's sympathetic towards them. And so the monster goes and chops wood and puts it at the door And every morning there's this chopped wood and they can go and sell the wood and it makes their lives better and they wonder who their benefactor is. And one day the child goes out and catches sight of the monster and screams in horror and realizing this is their benefactor and this is the, the one who loves them. And it's at that moment that the monster realizes that he just doesn't have a chance, that there's just no way that he's going to be accepted in the community of men and his heart is filled with rage At who? At his maker, right? What were Mm. you doing making me without a place in the world? The rest of the story is now horrific. Like God God doubles down and says, that's right, this guy cursed God. We have no compassion for him. He's got to get death by stoning. It's pretty harsh. Yep. It's almost like for as many questions as the Medrash answers, if you take the Medrash's understanding, it opens up so many more questions. It makes the story so much harsher. How do you understand God in the story? Maybe the guy is right. 
For all the questions that we asked earlier, one question we didn't ask was whether the Makalel was right or whether his punishment was overly harsh. Now, it's not like the question didn't come up because Rabbi Foreman and I are such big fans of public stonings. It's just that when we read a text, there's a difference between an internal question, questions that the Torah seems to be prompting you to ask, right? There are these oddities that stick out. And there's another type of question, which is called external questions, right? Things that may bother us personally, but the text seems to take for granted. So if you're just looking at the text in Leviticus, it seemed pretty clear to me that in the world of the text, the Mikhail does a horrible act and he's punished accordingly. But the Medrash seems to be intentionally turning that on its head. It's suggesting that on some level that we'd been missing, the Torah actually wants us to see the Mikhail as a sympathetic character, as an outsider, as a Frankenstein's monster. So now we have to ask, how could God possibly respond by having the Mikhail stoned to death? Now, you might say, Emu, that's still an external question. It's not a question the text wants you to ask. But let me put it this way. The text seems to paint a black and white picture, evil on the one side, good on the other. But once the Medrash comes in and upends that, it's no longer painting the Makalo as a simple bad guy. He has complexity. There's nuance here. There's a backstory, which means that However we grapple with God's justice in the story, it can no longer be black and white. It, too, is no longer simple. And while we're on the topic of bad guys in our story, the Medrash wasn't just shifting the blame to God. There was another character who didn't fare so well in this Medrash. And that character is Moshe. You know, one thing that doesn't seem grounded in the Medrash is the notion that they came to the court of Moses. Now, mm. you would imagine that they went to court. Sure, I mean, maybe they had to go to court. Where else were they going to settle this? But the text goes out of its way to say, no, it wasn't just any court. It was the court of Moses. So the question right, is, why is are that, they blaming Moses for this non-acceptance of the guy? Right. In a backhanded way, they do seem to be blaming Moses. In other words, let me ask you. Emu, if you were the judge, right, and this case came before you, what would you do? What is the job of a judge? I guess uh, it depends. <laughs> it depends when you when you catch me in my uh, political evolution. But uh, you could argue that my that uh, a judge's job is to apply the law. That is a judge's job. A judge's job is to apply the law. And when judges get too soft, then Congress goes and says, no, there's sentencing guidelines, and you're constrained, right? So here's motion. You're there to apply the law. And the truth is, this is the law. Tribal affiliation follows patrilineal descent. Are there going to be some people who fall between the cracks? Sure, there's going to be people that fall between the cracks of any law, but society has to run by laws, right? Your job as a judge is to apply the law. So on one level, it ain't Moshe's fault. But yet, I can see by your face that, you know, you're not so sure if you buy that. And so what happier ending could you imagine to this story? Emu, you're Moses, you're bound by the law. You say, you know, the, the people of Don have a point. Uh, this is the law. What do you do as you come out of court? Um, I, I mean, if this were a, a Rebbe book or a, about a famous rabbi or a Hasidic master, I feel right. like the epilogue would be Moshe would say, you know, what can I do? My hands are tied. You don't have a place, but your place will be in my tent. Yep. Right? Like, I, I, 
from now on, you will, you'll live with me. And, and there's a small victory against the snobby Danites. That's right. I got a place in my backyard, right? And to me, that's really where, by implication, the Medrash is condemning Moses. Because it's the anti, you know, Hasidic Rebbe's tale over here. We don't get that, which we would expect to get. It feels like this lost opportunity that, sure, the law came down, but look what happened. He went and he cursed God. And that's where your heart really aches. So the Medrash wants us to believe that Moshe was the bad guy? This was the point where I started feeling skeptical. Sure, the Medrash is weaving together all these details from the story, the mixed lineage, the tribe of Don, but there are lots of stories you can tell from any constellation of details. So where was the Medrash coming from? I mean, this specific story of alienation and rejection with Moshe cast in the role of antagonist. Turns out, Rabbi Foreman had this exact same question himself, and not just like now. It's actually something he'd been grappling with for years. In fact, the whole reason we're doing this season of Book Like No Other is because he recently came across a clue, a clue that helped him address this question, courtesy of none other than his son, Avichai. When I was chatting about this story with my son, Avichai, he showed me something that knocked my socks off. In light of this Rashi, I was aware of this Rashi, but I never knew where Rashi got this from, this notion that was Moshe's court, until Avichai very innocently showed me something about this first verse. Rabbi Foreman's referring to the first verse of the Mikalel story, which again is Leviticus chapter 24, verse 10. Let's look at the first verse one more time. Vayetzei ben Isha Yisraelit, v'hu ben Ish Mitzri betoch b'nei Yisrael. And there went out the child of an Israelite woman, who's also the child of an Ishmitzri, betoch b'nei Israel, into the children of Israel, vayinatsu, and they fought b'machana in the camp. And so, Imu, let me ask you, does this remind you of any other episode in the Torah? An episode in the Torah that might just involve, of all people, Moshe. Listen to this one more time. And he went out, this child, of an Israelite mm. woman, betoch b'nei Israel, into the people of an Israel, and they fought in the camp. Well, don't, you ha- don't you have exactly that language of going out into the midst of the Israelites with Moshe when he, um, when he grows up, when he's leaving the house of Pharaoh? Yes, you do. So let's look at Shmot. And it happened in those days. Moshe. Then Moshe grew up. And I'm reading now from verse 11 in chapter 2 of the book of Exodus. And he went out into his people. And Imu, if you're just looking at that grammatically, what question do you have? And he went out into his people. It's the same question as the Mikalel, right? Where did he go out from? Right, and I know where he's going out to, but where are you going out from? And by the way, think about who Moses is. Is Moses like this very clean and easy, one nationality kind of person? He has a mixed heritage. Even though his parents are both Israelites, his adopted parents, <laughs> they're Egyptian. They're not just mixed, it's specifically <laughs> this nationality. It's Egypt Egyptian. par excellence, he's- the palace, Right. The daughter of Pharaoh adopts him. He becomes literally the son of Pharaoh, a prince in the house of Pharaoh. And yet he's of, quote, mixed lineage because there's this Israelite person in the house of Egypt. 
So both Moses and the Makalel are children of mixed Egyptian and Israelite lineage, and both of them began a pivotal story in their life with Vayetze, going out and not just going out anywhere, but into the midst of the people of Israel. Intriguing, right? But the parallels don't stop there. He goes out to his brothers, Vayar Besivlotam, and he sees their suffering, and lo and behold, Vayar Ish Mitzri. Mm, there's a fight, there's a fight here too. Oh, look at that. Makeh Ish Ivri there's a fight. And who does the fight involve? But an Ish Mitzri. After Moses goes out amongst his brothers, he witnesses an Egyptian, an Ish Mitzri, beating a Hebrew slave. Not a fair fight, but a violent altercation nonetheless and one between an Egyptian and an Israelite, all of which echoes the Makalel story. But the strongest connection is probably those two words Rabbi Foreman got so excited about, Ish Mitzri, an Egyptian man. Those words, Ish Mitzri, they're very, very rare in the Torah. You know, you have an Ish Mitzri three times in the Torah. The first of those times is here, an ish mitzri makeh ish ivri me'echav, the Egyptian man that's striking a, a, a Hebrew slave. And the third and last time you have ish mitzri is in our story of the Makalal. Vayetze ben isha Yisraelit, this child of an Israelite woman goes out. Vuhu ben ish mitzri, who's the child of an Egyptian man. And by the way, Imu, if you look at Rashi, it'll make your blood run cold because Rashi tells us something about the Ish Mitzri, who is the father of the Makalal. Do they say it's the, it's the man that Moshe killed? I could see that. Well, let's read it. 2410, Rashi. Ben Ish Mitzri, hu ha-Mitzri shaharad Oh, I called it. That's great. <laughs> you called it. There it is. See, this is just, folks, this is right? a methodology. That's all I have to say. The sages aren't making things up. They're reading text with methodology. That's right. We were getting excited and kind of rushed that last point, so I'll break it down for you in case Exodus isn't fresh in your mind. After Moses sees that Egyptian man beating the Hebrew slave, he intervenes and kills the Egyptian, the Ishmitri. And now Rashi was saying that this Ish Mitzri in Exodus is one and the same with the Ish Mitzri in Leviticus, the man who fathered the Makalel. Rashi just putting two and two together, this very rare language of Ish Mitzri. And it's like, oh my gosh, you're telling me these stories are actually linked? The person he killed was the father of this blasphemer? makes your mind just melt listening to this. It's actually really, really creepy. According to Rashi, Moshe kills father and son, essentially, right? Or sets up the yes. killing of son. Basically, he kills this this Egyptian man uh, to spare him from what he does to the Israelite. Mm -hmm. In the case in Leviticus, though, Moshe's verdict, according to the Medrash, is the thing that... That ultimately leads tragically to that. The Makalah talk about creating a story that seems unsympathetic for Moshe. Right? Oh my gosh, it's like, what have you done? Your verdict is setting up the destruction of the child of the person that you killed in this other story. But I guess what I'm pointing out is, is that this notion that the Makala left the court of Moses is not just coming out of the imagination of the author of the Medrash. 
And if you had doubts, it's not just the words of Ayetze, it's not just the child of a mixed marriage, it's not just the words Itzmitri, it's not just the fact that there's a Ayetze where the place that I'm coming out from is not clear. It's one other word that's the real kicker. If you go back to the Makalal, you have one other word. And they fought in the camp, the child of the Israelite woman and the Israelite man. Well, that word, it's a very rare word. That word for fight, the other time you have it, is in the story of Moshe. Turns out the next day, there's another fight that he sees. A fight between two Hebrews. But look at the language. And then Moses went out a second time on the second day. And what did he see? Two Hebrew people, Nitzim, fighting. Very unusual word for fight. But again, echoing the fight of the Makalal. So it's like literally in the first single verse that introduces the story of the Makala, the blasphemer, I have no less than four references to the story of Moshe, another child, so to speak, of mixed heritage, who goes out and encounters two fights, and it, it wow. seems like the Medrash was not coming out of nowhere. The Medrash was coming from the text itself. Yeah, based on that constellation of, of evidence, uh, it, it very much seems like the Torah is telling you in order for you to understand what's going on in the Makalo, you need to wrestle, pun intended, with the story of Moshe and his, his coming of age story and uh, the two fights that he encounters. That's really wild. So the truth is, Emu, we've just begun to scratch the surface of this story. Now, if you know Rabbi Foreman as well as I do, you know that that's his wrapping things up teasing until next time voice. Yeah, that's right. He showed us all those intriguing parallels between Exodus and Leviticus just to make us wait until the next episode to explore their meaning. But I was okay with that. I enjoy mulling over a good parallel between meetings. But what I really didn't like anymore was, well, the whole McCallough story. It just got like 10 times harder to understand. Rabbi Foreman, before we, we end this episode, I, I think we're in a really different place than we were when we started, right? When we started, you asked a whole bunch of questions about this story not making sense, uh, this story being out of place, us not understanding exactly what's going on in the story. Um, but now I, I've got a question on like, what what is the moral of this story? Which is crazy. I would I never thought I would have asked that question because on the face of it, the moral of this story would be seemed to me like, don't curse God. Like if you curse God, you know, you're a jerk and we're going to stone you. But now it just seems like the, the moral is, is what? Like no matter how bad of a hand of cards you get dealt by God, seemingly, you can't question him. You can't be uh, furious with your lot. And if you dare question him, we're going to stone you. Like, is, is that the moral? Like it, it's so... It's difficult. And then God says an eye for an eye, you know, like, it seems really harsh. Yeah, I mean, it, it, as we leave the story at this point, with the Medrash's interpretation, we've got three burning questions about the meaning of the story. A burning question about the meanings of the story from the perspective of the blasphemer, from the perspective of Moshe, and from the perspective of God. From the perspective of the blasphemer, isn't this guy kind of sympathetic? From the perspective of God, and isn't this a little harsh? From the perspective of Moshe, couldn't you have like 
brought him in? Like, what what happened with you? And somehow, all of these questions are hanging in the air. And and all I can say is that I think that our work is not done here yet. We began by pointing out that this is a story without context. And we're beginning to see how that's not true, how there is a context to the story. And the context is richer and in some ways darker and more poignant than we might have suspected. There is a past to the story, but there's also a future to the story. There's a future that goes on in a multi-generational way, well beyond the five books of Moses. We haven't seen the end of these intertextual connections that link this story mm. from nowhere to a story that is deeply a part of everywhere. And Moshe is a piece of this from beginning to end. Even after Moshe's lifetime, Moshe is a piece of this. And so what I want to mm. show you in our future sessions together is how the past and the future of the story collide in mind-bending ways. And I think when we're done looking at that, we need to come back and ask those questions again. What is the moral of the story? What does it mean to be God in the story? What does it mean to the blasphemer? What does it mean to be Moshe? And somehow the moral of the story is how all three of those perspectives end up meshing with each other. But it is a bone-chilling story. Almost feels like the Macaulay days of future past. Yeah, I'm, I'm excited to take the journey with you. Okay, I look forward to our next time together. We'll see where this goes. Next time on A Book Like No Other, we head to Exodus to discover more parallels between Moshe and the Makalel, and a few striking differences that set these men on very different paths. A Book Like No Other is recorded by Rabbi David Foreman and me, Imu Shalev. Our producer is Tikva Hecht. Our managing producer is Adina Blaustein. Audio editing for this episode was done by Hilary Gutman. A Book Like No Other is a product of Aleph Beta and made possible through the very generous support of Shari and Nathan Lindenbaum. Thank you, Shari and Nathan, and thank you all for listening.